never in my life did I ever think that I would be fighting for my breath. Something that we take for granted every day when we wake up. This is Pillar of Hope, a story that explores the layers of innovative research, passion, and challenges driving a team of international doctors and researchers as they examine a way to decrease the risk of COVID-19 complications in patients. The team has now been assembled with sites in Canada, the United States, Ireland, Brazil, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Fall 2020. The second wave is upon us. COVID-19 cases are spiking again in some regions. Record daily highs in many countries. Although classes resume, road-weary travelers return from summer holidays, and businesses brace for a prolonged economic hit, COVID-19 numbers begin to increase again. Infections, hospitalizations, and deaths are on the rise. 10 million documented cases and the five highest days of new cases since the pandemic began in March. The small relief felt during the summer was short-lived. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases worldwide has passed 40 million with well over a million deaths. The team has been frantically working toward a solution for months, needing more funding and more patients to participate in the study. Still, they remain undeterred by the chaotic tsunami, once again rising outside the walls of their collective medical institutions. Almost 106,000 new cases were reported yesterday. Eight months have passed since Dr. Michelle Schulzberg, medical director of the Coagulation Laboratory and clinical hematologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, began her rapid COVID coagulation trial, referred to as the rapid trial. Much has been learned. A light was beginning to shine through the darkness of the unknown. At the onset of COVID-19, death rates in those admitted to the ICU reached as high as 50%. Abnormal blood clotting was discovered to be the strong link. As more information was coming in from international sources, and as the study marched forward, the team was becoming increasingly encouraged that high-dose heparin might be the solution so desperately needed. In addition to saving lives by reducing the clotting, there would be fewer critical care patients, creating more room in hospitals. However, higher dosage of the blood thinner could be dangerous by increasing the risk of bleeding. This is why a properly designed study is needed to help weigh the benefits and the risks. They were closing in, but more work had to be done. The team grew stronger, more determined than ever. In a rare, quiet moment, at the end of another turbulent day. With the lights inside her office dimmed, Dr. Schulzberg reflects on how it all began. I think with my personality, because I can't even fully remember myself asking myself, am I going to do this? Are you really going to do this? I just started doing it. I think it's because the need was so great. So in the same way that if I see a patient that's sick and I know that I can help them, I just do it. And I think in medicine that those are instincts, I guess, that develop over time where you're starting to behave instinctually. And I think that that is what happened here for me. 
that I realized, oh, there's something wrong. And I know blood problems and blood clotting. And oh, I know how to develop clinical trials. And oh, okay, let's do it. (laughs) And so I just did it. But then once I started developing the protocol and submitting the grants and assembling uh, an amazing study team, it all obviously became real. So it wasn't as if I was on autopilot and not thinking, but I think that initial part was probably a bit based on instinct, just because I knew that this research was critical and I wanted to help. So I just did. Going from what if to why not was the catalyst for a series of tweets, texts, and emails. Joined together by way of the social media landscape, an international collection of elite doctors and researchers bonded together without a moment's hesitation. Regardless of the many obstacles each country faced, the team pressed on. As 2020 draws to a close, the second wave far exceeds the astounding number of cases in the initial onslaught of COVID-19. Lockdowns return, nerves are frayed, and the public is once again on edge. Then, we have some breaking news. There is a breakthrough from the scientific community. The vaccine against coronavirus has proved 90% effective in early results. 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 cases. We're really now starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel that is going to ultimately get us through this. With the spike in cases reaching record heights and vaccines on the horizon, there is renewed enthusiasm to move even faster towards completion. I think the vaccines are absolutely important, but patients will still get COVID until 90% of the population is vaccinated. So we are still going to see a lot of morbidity, um, sickness coming from this disease for the next eight to 12 months. And we certainly hope to answer our question quickly so we can actually help patients. You know, vaccines aren't the cure, though even though patients are vaccinated, it's just like we get vaccinated for the flu every year, patients still can get the flu. So I think it's still very important that we come up with definitive, safe, and affordable treatments for this dreaded illness. We might be researchers and you know, trying to get this trial going, but we're all part of the global society and we are healthcare workers and we, we wish that the COVID pandemic goes away yesterday. And so we're very glad to hear these news about the vaccines. What we know is what is released in the press. We don't haven't seen data yet, but that doesn't really stop us or lessen the importance of it because they're aiming at prevention. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get the vaccine in in a day or a week and there will be no COVID patients afterwards. And that doesn't mean that that family of viruses, the coronavirus, won't come back in a pandemic again. I mean, we've seen this family with SARS. We've seen this family with the MERS cough. And now we see it with the COVID-19. And so the question remains, what would be the best way to treat these patients, at least when it comes to blood thinners? And I think it's important that we keep going through this trial and getting patients enrolled to provide the best answer hopefully soon. Because, you know, a vaccine provides the primary prevention, but then people who get it could get the optimal treatment for it. These are first in mankind, large scale uses of these uh, platforms to vaccinate people. So it's like a huge thing. And, uh, you know, and I think it shows that the scientific community can do huge things when there's international effort put together. And I think we're learning so much about the immune system. 
we're going to learn so much that can be applied to other problems like in trauma, inflammation and trauma, like, you know, how do we regulate the uh, inflammatory response post-trauma? So we're going to learn so much about that stuff. Even if we have the vaccine, this doesn't mean that miraculously this pandemic will just stop. It will probably become more seasonal in nature and will, you know, be more like a seasonal influenza, the flu. But in nature, for those people who end up being in hospital, even a year from now, we will have the same sort of problems and we need to know how to deal with these problems and how to treat patients who have these problems. Early results from Dr. Schulzberg's trial continue to be shared in medical facilities around the globe. During production of this podcast, Michelle learned of the Iranian medical community's interest and is preparing to welcome them to the team. Historians will reflect on COVID-19 for generations, a pandemic that paralyzed the world throughout 2020. They will present numbers of worldwide cases. Statistics will reflect the staggering number of deaths and the crippling financial effect. Future generations will look back on the year 2020 and pray it never happens again. The history books, however, will not capture the millions of personal stories, the sorrow, the disbelief, the outrage both personally and politically caused by COVID-19. The perfectly healthy neighbor that succumbed to the effects of the virus. The nurse who, initially without proper protective equipment, worked tirelessly to care for the sick. The doctors and other first responders who put their lives and their families on hold. The researchers who faced agonizing frustration trying to find answers, treatments, and ultimately, a cure. The unbridled enthusiasm shown by Dr. Michelle Schulzberg fueled the fires of an international study that would find a way to improve the outcome of patients with COVID-19. From early in the year and continuing today, the rapid trial team pushes harder, questions more deeply, and never loses hope. Perhaps it was best said by Nelson Mandela. Our human compassion binds us, the one to the other, not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learned how to turn our common suffering into hope for the future. Each team member reflects about the study and their collective spirit. I think from a research perspective, there's been such a huge outpouring of collaborative support for all of the research that is happening without a expectation of getting anything back from it, especially Michelle and her team. It's very much a team where we are sharing and open and trying to just get the right thing done for our patients and for the research to happen. And so from that perspective, there's always a hope that this question is going to be able to be answered, as well as the disease being able to be fought. We decided to join our studies because they were very, very similar. So we began as two studies very similar, one in Brazil and one in Canada. And then Saskia put us together and we joined our efforts. Now it's becoming a greater study because we want to finish it very, very fast and we are getting any help that we can from all over the world, people that think like us. 
but the opportunity to make this research and the possibility to have conferences with Michelle and Peter, they were always so helpful. And you could see they were really caring about patients. They were really interested in make the research possible for helping someone. And that's really, really different from just making another research. And I think when the staff from our hospital, when we, we approach them to talk about our research and to invite patients, they can see the, this kind of difference in our perspective too, that we are trying to find out if something can really works better for patients. Obviously, we, we believe it will help patients, but we don't have this answer Uh, in the best manner possible right now, but they can see we are interested in helping patients, not just interested about the research. And that's the same feeling I get from Peter and Michelle and Mercy, who's not a physician, but she's so helpful. Every time we have problems to fix, she's part of the St. Michael's Hospital team too, and she's amazing too. I know that we'll come in every day and, and do this for our patients. Is it pressured and difficult and challenging? Yes, of course it is. Treating patients in COVID-19 is different. It's a global problem. Everyone shares his fears and everyone in the world. So I think now all physicians are cooperating with each other to fight this disease. It's different than previous studies that was done previously for certain group of patients. This is a, a global problem that affects everyone and we don't know when it will end. I do believe that human art now is different than years ago, of course, like the science, cooperation, the, in regards to everything. I believe that we can pass this period. We are determined actually as a physician to pass it with if we are united with each other. It's a completely new experience. It was, I will admit, frightening, but As a team, we realized very quickly what needed to be done. And we were able to harness this frustration and translate it into action. I am very grateful to Dr. Schalzberg for giving us this opportunity to turn our frustration and our passion for making progress on this important question into action and into positive progress. This has given me incredible hope for the future. It is a deep honor to work with Dr. Schultzberg. She is an incredible clinician, a deeply inspirational scientist, and a fantastic human being. And I have no doubt that under the leadership of Dr. Schultzberg and her colleagues running the rapid trial, that we will get this done and that we will deliver data that will tell us how to best use blood thinners to treat the patients that are affected with COVID-19 that we care for in Irish and international hospitals. The funding is a huge problem and a big challenge. And I think one of the special things about this project is that people have signed on and have started collaborating and participating and doing work without the level of funding that there might normally be for a large-scale clinical trial. And because everybody has such clarity of purpose and is pulling together for this common goal. But these kinds of trials are expensive and there is still an ongoing need for 
additional funding so that we can meet our objectives. Research is a frustrating endeavor and I have been at this long enough that I have my feet on the ground in terms of persevering and being dedicated because research always takes longer than you think it should and there are always hiccups. You know, you're on the bench doing an experiment and it doesn't work or you're not getting the patients recruited that you need for a study and so I think any successful researcher becomes pretty determined and that's easier the clearer you are about the good that could come out of what you're doing. It's really important for me to be doing patient-focused research because that's the motivation and it ties very nicely with my clinical life and the fact that I look after patients who have these problems and so I see them and that's always the motivation to try to make things better, to make people's lives better, to come up with treatments or diagnoses or cures for disease. There is pretty significant hope here that we're on to something important. So close enough that it's in sight and that continues to motivate us to work very hard. Michelle has pulled this off with spit and duct tape. I mean, it's incredible what she has done with very limited funds and I don't think there's many people who would have been capable of doing what she's done. And it's the strength of her relationships with people and everybody's crystal clear on why she's doing this. It's not for academic glory or for a massive publication that's gonna advance her career. And maybe those things will happen, but she wants to help people. And that was so clear, that initial phone call I had with her, that she just wanted to figure this out so that people wouldn't die. My biggest fear is having um, a patient that came in alive and looking well ultimately die on me. We do our best. We really do. It's amazing the number of considerations that have to be taken when you launch something like this. And, and it's important to know that a clinical trial normally, to get it designed, funded and launched, that's a process that can take five, six years in normal times. And we're talking about five, six weeks. You know, it's been really crazy. Part of my role in RAPID is to organize collection of blood samples from the patients who are treating. So those blood samples can be sent to my lab in Vermont and we'll be able to measure biomarkers in the blood that might predict outcomes or predict, you know, the response to treatment. And Dr. Scholzberg was speaking with the physicians in Saudi Arabia who are so excited to launch the study and uh, really wonderful to work with. And just sociocultural issues around, you know, collecting those blood samples and what were we gonna do with the blood samples? And would we analyze DNA and things like that were big issues for them. And um, it turned out that once we explained exactly what we were gonna do and that it didn't involve DNA, they were, oh, this is great, we're excited about it. And it turned out in the end, there were logistical barriers to them collecting blood samples. And we would have had other barriers getting the blood samples from Saudi Arabia here in a way that would make them usable, keeping them frozen and, and so forth. So it didn't work out for them to participate in the blood collection part. Perfect is the enemy of good, right? And so what I think might be perfect might not be what the other person thinks is perfect. And so we resolve to agree on something that maybe one day one of us gives in and the other day the other one gives in. And in the end, you have a really great trial that you're standing up, you know, in this exceedingly fast 
time. So it was really an interesting process of how science gets done in a pandemic when there's so much stress to to get it done. It's been extraordinarily fantastic to work with some of my colleagues who are in Ireland and Saudi Arabia and Brazil. And like most communication these days, we have Zoom meetings, we have emails, and you know, we talk back and forth. Dr. Schoesberg has been an amazing and inspiring principal investigator. She really keeps us up to date about what's happening. She and her team at St. Michael's have banged on every door and have done their best to really keep things going in Toronto. Like right now, I also can't imagine how she and her team are doing it when they're facing really high numbers in Toronto. So they have to provide the clinical care for the patients, but also still have to keep the research going as well. So it, it takes incredible strength, but it's inspiring and it, it's been fun to talk to others in other parts of the world to also learn from them and how they run studies. You know, how they do things in Brazil is different than how we do things here that's different than how they do it in Ireland. So we actually, you know, have been given this amazing opportunity to learn from each other and maybe to think, hey, you know what? We don't have to do it this way. This is a smarter way to do it. Maybe we should try this or that. So that's always been one of the, the most amazing things when we get collaborators, researchers together. Because I, I think most of us are comfortable with change and then always are, are looking for creative and innovative ways to do things differently and better. It's a great opportunity for us to do that. Hospitals do have one advantage in this second wave, experience. Healthcare workers know more about the virus, what kind of treatment is most effective for patients. It's a wonderful international collaborative study that, you know, essentially is unfunded, I would say, initially. And so everybody is just excited for it, just because it is an extremely important question that we need to answer for patients with COVID. And when Michelle and Peter talked to me, you could kind of sense the sense of urgency, but also the sense of excitement that we really need to get this up and going with as many people from around the, the world as possible to try to have an answer to this as soon as possible. And early on, everybody was talking about, you know, what we're going to do, what do we need and how much we would need. And I could see from them, but also what I've heard from them about other standards, like, you know, we're with you, we're in. It doesn't matter the money now. Let's just get started. Let's just try to get everything, you know, in order to run this trial and hopefully answer this important question as soon as possible. And whatever is needed later on, there's a lot of time that we can talk about. But now we really need to get this study to the ground and up and running. And that has been essentially the mantra since the start. You know, I'm happy to see that the study is getting some funding and some attention, which is great. But that hasn't you know, changed anything. We're still excited. We're still trying to recruit patients. And I, I should say patients have been wonderful, the ones that we involve them. It's, it's a collaborative work between scientists, researchers, everybody involved in the research, more importantly, the patients themselves uh, who volunteer to join us. I think the world we live in will be profoundly changed after this pandemic. I can just see in the healthcare system, the changes already uh, being made in terms of the way we see patients. Uh, there's going to be a lot more virtual care and some of the uh, assets that are going to be available. It's going to be a very different world. And I can't even explain all the changes. Or even, I don't even know. But I know it's going to be a different world after the pandemic. And I, we're not going back to normal. 
in the healthcare sector anyways. We're just not going back to normal ever. In the end, I really think, you know, we're all standing so much in the same shoes, you know, and this also, this entire pandemic tells us that we're all so vulnerable. I see we had, you know, we had um, colleagues who lost their mentors to this disease. We're all, you know, we're all, we're all concerned about, you know, uh, the, the, the vulnerable people in our own families, etc. And this, what what this project just shows is exactly that we're all standing in the same shoes and we're all struggling with the same things here. And I think the mere fact that we struggle also helps projects like this one means we just help each other and it keeps us going. You know, we help each other. We're in this boat together, and it like for me, this is tremendously important. Also, personally, actually, you know, just when I when I see what can flower, you know, with people who never met before, you know, with with me thinking, okay, once we survive this pandemic, I would like to take my family to Brazil, just to hug these people, you know. This is tremendously just going back to us as, as just just as humans, every one of us. You know, we're just every one of us can contribute there to a certain to a certain degree. And what happens also, you know, when I see then also with this trial, it just it really keeps touching me, you know, on a very personal, deep, deep level. I think one thing to emphasize with the sites that have been involved with our trial is that very little, if any, research funding has exchanged hands. And that's true for all of the sites. And for example, our site in Ireland at the University College Dublin, led by Dr. Fanula Nianla, her research institute has come forward with the support of their research infrastructure. This kind of stuff doesn't happen usually in research where people sort of say, this is such important research. We want you to be a part of this. We don't care if there's no exchange of money. We're going to step forward and support this because we think it's that important. So this theme of generosity and kind of this sense of banding together, like it's all our responsibility, let's do this together, is unbelievable. And that is a theme that is true for every site that's involved. In Saudi Arabia, our national lead is Dr. Musad Al-Hamza and co-led by Dr. Faris Al-Omran. These two physicians are vascular surgeons. So they operate on blood vessels that are sick, diseased, and filled with clots. And I just had a conversation with Musad the other day where he had a difficult interaction with one of his colleagues where he felt that he wasn't being heard and that his credibility was being questioned about what does he really know about blood clots. And he shared with me is that he just got out of an operating room where he was fully gowned and masked and et cetera. And you can imagine how hard that is as a surgeon. And the patient had COVID and their aorta was filled with clots and he couldn't save them. And he's a husband and father, and that's really hard day in, day out to lose patients and to not only be treating the patients, but to kind of hold the patient in your hands. Like, that's, that's really rough. They have stepped forward and done an incredible job recruiting patients. Amazing, amazing work. And their research institute has also put forth resources to support the trial. In Argentina, we have two sites there led by incredible team members and again very minimal funding is flowing between our hands they have also been a very uh, heavily hard hit by covid very high mortality rate the initial connection was with dr diego caruso 
And then finally, in the United Arab Emirates, there's Dr. Moza Al-Mershoudi, who worked with me for a few years in my uh, bleeding disorders clinic when she was a trainee and then returned to UAE and now has become the chair of her research institute. And she reached out to me and said she wanted to become involved in RAPID and said that she'll do whatever she can. And when I talked about, you know, we don't have an abundance of funding, um, but I will send whatever we can. And she just looked at me and said, don't worry about it. We're going to do this. Don't worry about it. I'm not worried about money. This kind of stuff doesn't happen in research because it takes money to make clinical trials run. So I wanted to emphasize that the rapid trial research team, I feel, really operates like a family and I'm grateful to them. It's for the mother who will never get to see her son's graduation. For the father who will never get to walk his daughter down the aisle. For sons and daughters who will sit next to an empty chair at family gatherings that the doctors and researchers of the rapid trial bring you a pillar of hope. This research was made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partner institutions, organizations, and grant providers, which we proudly highlight in the show notes of this podcast. Learn more about this life-saving research and how you can contribute to this ongoing trial at stmichaelsfoundation.com slash COVID Rapid Hope.